God, thanks for this uh, time and for this conversation. Thanks for allowing us to be able to talk about your word freely and um, to jump in and uh, just learn from your scriptures what they have to say today, that we believe your word's powerful and just ask that you'd be in this conversation in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 All right, welcome to the locker room. If this podcast has been serving you, hit follow and the notification bell and... As I've reminded you before, we do have an Instagram page, if that's your thing, Crossroads Locker Room, so follow there as well. Gabe, I'm just curious about, because you're talking language I don't know much about. I'm not in the world of social media. (laughs) What's a follower? Do we have followers? (laughs) (laughs) Technically, that's the name, you know? Uh, Yeah, I guess I'm I'm not really, I mean, I technically have profiles on social media, but Mm -hmm. I'm not really on... Social media followers are the people that can see the content that you post. Okay. And well, there's a good side of that and there's a bad side because right. we've become a culture of content creators, um, which is also interesting as we talk about being named today because mm-hmm. God changes some names and that has to do with identity. And yeah. a lot of social media screams, you got to go make a name for yourself. You have to create right. content to justify your existence in the world and anyway so but there's some good sides of it too and that is mass communication and have they mainly changed it from uh calling them like friends on facebook to followers now is that pretty much the main thing i i don't know the details i think Hmm. followers is instagram Hmm. and friends is facebook friends is facebook i think you can follow like public figures on facebook Hmm. anyway as uh libby throws up the loser sign (laughs) (laughs) Gabe, awesome job on Sunday. Thanks. Really, really good. Incredible. Yeah. Loved it. We were in California on vacation, but <laughs> it was fun from afar just uh, seeing you in your element. Thanks. I mean, you looked really comfortable and you studied the text. You, I could tell you loved the text. You had some hard parts in the text as well, mm-hmm. and you went there. <laughs> Brought some good humor in appropriate <laughs> ways. It needed that. So, no, I was just proud of you. I guess that's Grateful. what happens when you give a young adult's pastor a section on circumcision. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So we're all the way into Genesis 17. Before we get into Genesis yeah. real quick, can I throw something out there? Because we yeah. just started also the season of Lent, right? We just um, had our great Wednesday night. Ash Wednesday service. We also had to miss that, but we've heard so many great things. So I just want to throw out an opener question here. What is everyone at this table thinking about Lent? Are we giving anything up? Are we saying yes to anything? Yeah. Go for mm-hmm. it, Gabe. I actually um, am taking off social media. Um, so just Facebook and Instagram, just cutting that. Um, but one year, what I did was no radio in the car, no no music, which is kind of odd because I always have something going on in the back. But do you still listen to radio, or do you mean no content? Uh, no, <laughs> I mean like no music, no radio, nothing. Okay, uh, okay. but yeah, I, yeah, that's what I did a few years ago. But yeah, so no social media this year. Good for you. Yeah, yeah I, I haven't really. I have an interesting thought when it comes to Lent. Say it. Well, so when I came to know Jesus. 
I went back to school and then in college and, and didn't really know what it meant to be a disciple of Jesus and Lent rolled around and I was at a nominally Christian school. So everyone was talking about, I'm going to give up chocolate. I'm going to give up social media, blah, blah, blah. And it was actually that morning that I happened to read in Mark chapter 8, where Jesus says, for those of you that lose their life, for my sake will gain it. For what is it for one man to uh, gain the entire world and forfeit his soul? And uh, yeah, I just, I don't, I mean, I, I know that people's intentions are are good behind that, but our whole lives are supposed to be consecrated to him. And in that moment, I felt God answer that prayer because I had been praying, okay, what do you want me to give up for Lent? Like, obviously this is an important thing. And God just like, actually, I want your whole life. I want everything about you. And so from that day forward, I haven't made, I could be wrong, but I haven't made a huge deal about giving a particular thing up, although I'm reflective of that. But I just want to be mindful of any area of my life that hasn't been handed over to him. Yeah, I I actually love what both you guys are saying Mm -hmm. because right now Gabe's given a specific thing that Mm -hmm. God put on your heart to give up. And yet... This can't just be a 40-day thing that we're entering. And we are in danger of leaving the gospel and moving into religion as well for 40 days where we make this all about ourselves. Um, And all of life ought to be, we're in a marriage with God. All of me for all of you. God's saying all of me for all of you. So Hmm. I'm just going to say I have something that I don't really need to say because it's not that big of a deal. But I know that God said, hey, he put his finger on something, and I just said, yeah, for these 40 days, this will be fun, and I'm going to use it as well to just like seek him more, draw near to him more. For sure. One thing I appreciate about the church liturgical church calendar is that it gives you opportunities to constantly reevaluate. And so with the rhythms of the liturgical calendar, every time this time of year spring rolls around, for me it's helpful to be given an excuse or a forced season to say, evaluate and say, God, what what am I saying too much yes to that I should say no to in order to say yes to more of you? And so I too am giving up something that's going to actually, I think, be pretty hard for me. Um, but it's not just the no, like you guys are saying, it's, it's what am I going to now fill that extra time with? Like Gabe in the car, you're like, you're not going to be distracted by things. So what are you going to be focusing your mind on? And so for me, it's about saying the no so that you can say a greater yes. And um, yeah, if anyone's listening, you guys can pray for me because I think it's going to be a long 40 days. Good. Yeah. Yeah. It, uh, yeah we're, Libby and I have been reading this book on vacation by uh, Rosario Butterfield. I can't remember the name of the yeah. book right now. It's something like Five Lies. Of our anti-Christian huh. age. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. It's hmm. it's. It's wrecking me in a great way. I I absolutely feel like the book is it's pushing so much into my soul that I feel like it needs to be pushed into the church today. And she's constantly, constantly talking about the gift of repentance. Mm. Yeah. Of just being able to acknowledge things in our lives, things that we're doing, things that we've mm. become being really honest about it and realizing that this is not of God and returning to God or laying these things down and turning to God with all your heart and sin. Like she just so can talk about sin in a very comfortable way Hmm. and it's very refreshing. So 
Yeah, I agree. I think the um, her mentioning of just the fact of living in this world and the constant influence and barrage of messages that you're getting, it's very hard to not get off by just a few degrees. And then within a year, you're like, how did I get 30 degrees off, hmm. you know, of where God might want me to be? So I so appreciate her admonition to be constantly like vigilant about what you're letting into your mind, um, where you're letting society and might seem empathetic in some ways, but you're letting it into your life and your thought process and Hmm. the opportunity to just return. Like Rod mentioned, we all have that opportunity to every morning, God says his mercies are new every morning. We can just start over like we have, that's the gospel, right? That we can just say, okay, I messed up or I've gotten off track but I can easily get right back on just by coming to him. So, um, yeah, I'm I'm really excited for this season of Lent. Yeah, and we have a lot of really exciting things coming up at the church, too. I mean, leaning into some new electives. Uh, you know, we're talking about sanctification and uh, not, being, not conforming ourselves to the world, but being renewed by the transformation. I actually switched those words. I think it's being transformed <laughs> by the renewing of our minds, right? We have an intro to the Bible elective, which is going to be really awesome, taught by uh, Matt Bell, who's uh, a teacher at North Point Christian, awesome Bible teacher, super excited about that. Yeah, that lasts three weeks, right? March 3rd, 10th, and 17th-ish, right around there, so that in this Lent season, you can dive into that. Yep, we can dive into that. And then we have a week off, and at the end of March, wait, yeah, no, and then on the 24th, which is actually the beginning of Holy Week this year, Easter's in March, we have a Passion Week elective by Brad Bankston. Super mm. excited about that. That's a little bit more technical, wouldn't you say, Libby? Yeah, he's going to take us through the actual last um, few days of Jesus' life and how he walked through Jerusalem. And so if you've been to Israel with us, or if you're any kind of an archaeology nerd, this would be a great niche elective for you because he's going to explore some of the what all those things mean with also a, a gospel overlay. So looking at the scriptures in a really realistic way and what that looked like for Jesus in that mm-hmm. last week. So it should be fascinating. Yeah, I'm excited. So, so before we transition to the text, I just want to hit on that Lent theme one more time, because while I haven't thought of a thing to give up this year, one thing that I've been really trying to lean into in my prayer life and, and just my thought life is this theme of dust and ashes, which obviously yeah. isn't new to us, but we are making that the theme of our 24-7 prayer currently. Hmm. And it comes from this idea that we are dust and to dust we shall return. And so there's this idea that we can contemplate, you know, that we're not infinite, that we will die. And hopefully beyond that, then think of the glorious eternity that we have in Christ if we are his. So I think living in light of our death is probably just as important as living in light of the eternity that comes after that death. Hmm. Wouldn't you say? Yeah. If I look deer in the headlights right now, it's just because I just had lunch with a guy (laughs) who Hmm. literally is at that stage in life. He lost his wife two years ago. He's been coming to our church from the very beginning. He's approaching 90 and he asked me to do his funeral. And it's just at the forefront of his mind all the time. And when you're talking with someone like that, then it comes to the forefront of your own mind because life isn't that long. We are dust and to dust we shall return. Hmm. And that's why the season is so fun to just start there because if you can't start there, you're not going to have the capacity to appreciate the resurrection and new creation. Hmm. 
but if we can live for the next 40 days leading up to Easter in this dust and ashes, uh, from dust we came, from dust we shall return, in a season of ashes and repentance mm. and turning back to God with all of our heart, knowing that this will lead to a glorious resurrection mm. and new creation. It's awesome. All right, well, I don't really have a transition from that, but it's good, other than to say that speaking of repentance, repentance is not just something we do with our minds, but it's something that we do with our lives. And Abraham and Sarah, or Sarai, I guess, at this point in the story, have a lot to repent for, considering they're coming off of this episode where they've taken the covenant promise into their hands. They've tried to work it out by their means and now God's saying, nope, this is actually not how my promise is going to be fulfilled. I'm going to do something about that. And that's really where I love that you started with your message, Gabe. You, you talked about these seven I will statements that the Lord comes in and says, Abram, you're trying to do this, but I will. Mm-hmm. I will. Mm-hmm. I will. So how did God reveal that to you in your week of study? And in what ways did that, this, this idea of God being the one that's saying, I'm going to make it happen, minister to you? Yeah, I um, I looked at uh, how the passage was organized, and I found that um, in verse 4, it says, as for me, then God says in verse 9, as for you, then verse 15, as for Sarai, and then again um, later it says, for as for Ishmael. And I, I think that um, I looked through that first one, and you see several I will statements, and um, the I will statements actually like made me think, I didn't go into it as much, but a lot about your message a few weeks ago when God is the one who walks down the aisle, mm-hmm. like on behalf of them both. And so like, it's a lot of God saying, look, I will do this and I, I'm going to keep my promise. Um, so that's at least, those are some of the organizational parts of the text that stood out to me um, when I was looking at it. So yeah, I'm looking at the text right now. I will is everywhere. Mm-hmm. And I love how you put that, Gabe. He's he's not just saying, I will do this for you, Abram, mm-hmm. but I'm going to do this for you, Abram. I'm going to do this for you, Sarah. I'm going to do this for you, Ishmael. He's covering mm-hmm. the whole household. Yeah, yeah. And the other thing was like, I think for me when I was looking at the text, I always thought this was mostly about God changing Abram's name or Sarai's name. And I think those are interesting things that like, you know, you, you can read a lot of commentaries on and like um, I, I hear a lot of messages on God changing the name. But I really think that the point of him changing the name was actually about God saying, look, I'm so committed to this. I'm so reliable. I'm so faithful to keep my promises that I'm literally putting my name on it. Um, and I, I, I haven't worked through it completely to connect it, but it reminds me a lot of Hebrews 6, I think is the part, or there's a part in Hebrews where God talks about two immutable things, um, which makes it impossible for him to lie. And it says, because he couldn't, when people make an oath, they usually make the oath on someone greater than themselves. Uh But because God, there was no one greater than God, he actually just made it on his own name. And I was like, well, where did God make an oath on his own name? I, I think this is the part. I could be wrong, sure. um, but I think that it's like God literally saying my name and reputation are at stake here. So I'm putting them on Abraham's name and Sarah's name yeah. so that if this fails, my name also fails. Um, it's really good. 
and it's not a minor point point in the sense that that does really that is really significant mm-hmm. because in an ancient Near East context, naming someone was one of the greatest impositions of authority over that person's life, identity, destiny. This is why it's think about the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I'm going to yeah. change your name, and then by doing that, I'm changing your identity. You're now going to assimilate to all that we are in yeah. our culture, and God is saying. No, no, I'm going to assimilate you with me. I'm going to exercise my authority over you. I'm giving you a name because you are mine. That's the that's where my mind, mind went. You know, mm-hmm. this isn't the only time that someone is naming someone else or renaming them for their purposes, you know, in the Old Testament. Kind of like so I was very encouraged. Yeah, like we're um like Adam is naming all the animals, like exercising authority over is that kind of what you're getting? That's exactly yeah. right. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. So that it was is an act of authority yeah, to no, be able to name something. Negative, or it was a negative instance in the obviously in the lives of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But here it's in a very positive sense because mm-hmm. the person that they're being named by is Yahweh, which I love. Where he, <laughs> you did some nerdy stuff on Sunday, but I loved how you even talked about the two <laughs> a, the two H's yeah. in Yahweh's name, and then how God adds an H to Abraham and to Sarah's name. Uh, just an interesting. Mm-hmm. Point, well, so. And I think you guys were the ones who mentioned to me the the hay being like yeah. the breath. Oh, it's the so the ha. H is in Hebrew is called the hay. <laughs> yeah. So he's not, just to be clear. So in the <laughs> Hebraic <laughs> alphabet, the H is not called an H; it's called a hay. Yeah. So go ahead. Yep. It's, I mean that's God's name: Yod Hey Vav Hey uh, Y hmm. H W W H. Yeah. So you have two what we call H's. To them are haze but it's the of god <laughs> you like that don't you trig <laughs> no but honestly you, it, it's the it's the it's letter the that it takes the most breath to say <laughs> so god is putting you could say and he's, he's already his, breathed the breath of life into adam yeah it's right into right his nostrils stories yeah yeah it's like god's redoing what he did in the garden he's not giving up on the world and now abram and sarah are becoming his new uh, Shalom project, you know. Before it was Adam and Eve, hmm. and now it's Abraham and Sarah. Let's let's start this over again. Let's try again, bringing Shalom to the chaos of our world. So, just for clarity, though, what what does Abraham mean in reference to Abram? I, I, my understanding, and maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong, but Abram, so exalted father, and then Abraham. Um, so uh, father of many, and like, like you know, you hear Abba, um, so you can hear it in Abraham's yeah. name, like Abraham. Yeah. Um, and so I think that's where, if you break it down, that's what it means. Yeah. Um, so. so it's it's fascinating that if you think about it, we call God Father, and our Father God, as he is reigniting the Shalom Project once mm-hmm. again, he chooses a man whose name is Father, and then is going to make him a father in the most spectacular way. But before he does that, he's going to change his name to the father of everyone. Mm. So I'm going to touch on this more in next week's text. But this is also significant because one of the things we didn't get to talk about after you preached on Ishmael is, you know, but you did make a few comments that were really awesome was that, no, this Ishmael isn't a mistake. Mm-hmm. And although the blessing isn't going to go through Ishmael, it's going to come back around to Ishmael through Christ, obviously. Yeah, I mean, God is Father, and 
his kids are outside his Beit Av, outside the garden. And hmm. he could give up on the world, but instead he's going to redeem it. He's going to restore his kids back into his household. And he is going to do that by choosing another man who's named Father. Mm-hmm. And they're going to partner together to redeem every family on the face of the earth. Mm-hmm. And that's what this whole project is about. That's where it's going. So, and I'll, I'll just give you a little commercial for next week. There's only two times in the Bible where an old man runs. Mm-hmm. Because it's just a dishonorable thing to do in the Middle Eastern culture. Mm-hmm. You just never, an old man that's one of the most dishonoring things, shameful things an old man can do is run. Mm-hmm. And uh, next week, Abram, when he sees these three strangers off in the distance, mm-hmm. it's going to pick up his loins, bare his legs, shame himself, and just run to those strangers. Then he's going to run back after he washes their feet, welcomes them, says, come eat a meal. He's going to run back to his household and say, we're going to prepare a feast and he's just showing this amazing hospitality. And the other time when an ma- old man runs is the f- parable of the prodigal, mm. when the father on the porch sees his son off in the distance, and he runs. Mm. He does that shameful thing of girding his loins, bearing his legs, and just running to his son. Mm. And the reason I, I don't think that's a coincidence, I think what we get here is that that audience of Jesus day, when they're hearing Jesus tell this story, this parable of the prodigal, they, they would be thinking, oh, this is Abraham. Only Abraham in the Bible is this old man that gets up and starts running. So that's what they're picturing. But think about that then. That means, but Jesus is saying, no, this father is actually God. This is God, your father. Hmm. But Abraham is such a picture of that father. And hmm. that's where this whole story is going. And that's the partnership, these two fathers. It is. And there's actually a trellis set up for the entire Old Testament in this passage, which is amazing. If you've ever read Sandra Richter's book, Epic of Eden, she actually sets the trellis up, or she she likes to call it the the cluttered closet syndrome, um, that a lot of us as Christians, we we know a lot of facts and figures about the Old Testament, but it's hard to make sense of everything. Mm -hmm. But here we have a a people, a place, and a presence. That's how she says the whole Old Testament is about a people, a place, and a pr- the presence. The presence is obviously the presence of God. This comes, I'll, I'll go actually in order. So first he says in verse or six, I will make nations of you, mm. right? Mm-hmm. And then verse eight, I will give you an everlasting possession, um, which is the whole land of Canaan, right? And then he says, and to your descendants after you, I will be their God. It's almost like God is saying, I'm going to give you a family, Hmm. I'm going to give you a home, and the father of that household is going to be me. Yes, and your job is going to be to partner with me to welcome strangers back into the household, to welcome lost sons, marginalized people, to bring them back home. And that's Hmm. what the whole project is. Exactly. So those are some coat hangers, as Sandra Richter would call it, in in the Epic of Eden. Go read that book. It's amazing. Um, Just for for the rest of the narrative. Right, it's yeah. God's people and God's place with His presence. That's God just wants to dwell in the house of His people, be with them, love them, run after them. Mm-hmm. Um, and it starts with this symbol, a really weird symbol for us, the symbol of circumcision. On Sunday, you said, you know, we we're not firing anyone, but there might be some cuts. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> that was uh, 
me and Nate English were talking about the passage before, and that I have to credit Nate because he helped me with that. So it was a fun. <laughs> 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 so let's talk about circumcision. Is there a natural way to say that? <laughs> no, but seriously, so circumcision is not unique unique to the Israelites, although they did practice in a little different way than other ancient Near East cultures. What did you learn about that practice? Well, um, I mean, I, I was surprised to find that it didn't it wasn't unique to that because I think I associate it so strongly with um, Jewish culture. So I thought that's where. Um, it all originated and all came from, but I was just reading other books and finding out just other things about it. And then I talked to some people who've done like mission work in other places and are um, more aware of what's happening globally right now. And there's some places where it's actually in history been abused um, and turned into, um, yeah, for lack of a better word, more like cultic practices and mutilation and stuff. And so I, I don't think circumcision in... Uh, its entirety is always used well, but I think in this particular spot, um, the the scholar I was reading, he was talking about how in the same way that crosses are not unique to Christian, uh, crosses are not unique to Jesus, but the, what happened when God did something through Jesus, it changed the idea of a cross forever. So in the same way, um, what God did through Abraham changed our view of circumcision forever. Um, so, and I think for me, where I kind of landed with it is I think that it it was done in that spot because it was most connected to God's promise to Abraham, like most necessary for God's promise of a child to um, come to pass. Um, but then in the New Testament, that circumcision, it talks about it more of being circumcision of the heart, which I actually think it mentions in Deuteronomy too. Yeah. It does. Um, yeah. It does. So, No, and you handled that incredibly well. The Egyptians practiced circumcision. You know, so, but, but this becomes, mm -hmm. and, and so central uh, to, to Jewish identity. Like you said, it's their wedding ring. Mm -hmm. It's the symbol of the covenant that God made with Abraham. You know, that, that we are all of me uh, for you, God, and God, all of you for mm -hmm. me. It's just, and here's the symbol. And you're marked. And it's a communal mark, too. You know, this is not the world of individualism. This this is not the world of individual. What I'm saying is is this this story that we're plopped into is not in a culture of individualism. So this is a communal identity. So starting with Abram, it's saying all of your family, right? And that by becoming circumcised, you were identifying with that communal identity. So why just the males, though? I mean, I think we got to address that because why? If, if women are a part of this covenant promise, why do they not get a mark? Well, I think we're, first of all, we're in a patriarchal society. So as much as we bristle against that today as women, and we say this patriarchal thing is bad and evil, um, it really is the way that God set up the world in the Old Testament to actually take care of and provide for women. So the fact that it's patriarchal doesn't mean that you um, don't have any rights, but it means that you are brought into a family that's led by a male so that you are covered and provided for and cared for and protected. So remember, these are tribal nomadic people groups who are living out in the wilderness. And so when you become a part of this family as a female, then every need that you have is met. So it's really a covering and a protection. 
So when the men in the family come under the authority of God by embracing the covenant and the signs that he's prescribed for them, then you come into that family saying, I'm underneath men who are underneath the authority of God, who are living in a faithful walk after God. So this is a good place for me to be because the men here, as they've taken on the covenantal symbols, are acting like God in the sense that they're caring for me, protecting, protecting me, and loving me. So that's one side of it because that's the patriarchal world that the Old Testament is, is set in. So it's about responsibility is what you're well, saying. Well, secondly, yeah. I'm going to get one more thing I want to say, though, is that when we, we've talked a little bit and we're going to talk about the name changes, you notice that it's not just Abraham who gets his name changed, but also Sarah as well. So God, even though she's in this patriarchal system and God is setting up these covenant markers with men, he's still in direct relationship with Sarah. So he's saying to her, Abraham, you're going to get your name changed, but also Sarah, you are a daughter of the covenant, and I'm going to give you a new identity in the midst of this covenant that your husband has the marks of his in his body. You're going to have the mark of this covenant in your name. So you are also getting a new name. And I know we talked about the hey and the H being in the name. And to me, that's significant because the H is the breath of God, um, represents in the Judaic mindset the spirit of God. So he's breathing his spirit into their names and saying, you once were dead, these were your names, and I'm giving you life and new meaning. In a sense, I'm recreating you. Like we saw the Spirit of God breathed into Adam and Eve at creation. He's recreating them and saying, I'm giving you my spirit now, and you're going to step into a new identity and a new vision that I have for you. So I see women, especially in Sarah here, being actually highly valued and cared for in this patriarchal society, which we hate to talk about as women today, but honestly, it's a good thing that God set up. Yeah, I mean, it's not like in any way women are less than or less equal to the man in this. Um, Abraham and Sarah, both they've both received the call of God, and now they're both receiving new names from God. But when it comes to who's gonna be held maybe accountable for unfaithfulness, just like in the Garden of Eden. You could say, well, Eve was the first to eat the, eat the fruit. Well, then why did God say, Adam, where are you? It's because God spoke to Adam and made Adam more responsible for the eating of the fruit. They're both equal, but Adam was responsible and or more responsible. And I think the same thing is is going on here. Abram's not even just responsible uh, for his household, but the foreigners that come in, hmm. this passage says, yeah. which is crazy. <laughs> and I think we think about everything in terms of rights, and that's not how they're thinking in their world. They're not thinking, I have a right to this, I have a right to this. I, they're thinking in terms of responsibility. So even the birthright, which we'll, we'll talk about in a little bit, um, where one of the sons gets a lion's share of, of the inheritance. And we think, wow, that feels unfair. Like, why would the firstborn son get a lion's share of the inheritance and all the other children get hardly anything? Well, they weren't getting rights. They weren't getting just the inheritance. They were getting the responsibility because now they were going to become uh, the head of that household 
And it's now their responsibility to use the resources of this family to make sure that every need of that household is being met. And so that's what Esau will say. I don't want that responsibility. Jacob's going to say, I want it. For us, though, we look at it as, oh, Jacob, why does he get all the rights and the inheritance? That's not what that's about. And same here. It's, it's about responsibility, not rights. And one other just tangent on it, I think, too, with um, like, like circumcision, while it was a physical mark, that wasn't the end game. Like, um, because I think, you know, Deuteronomy 10, verse 16, it says, circumcise, therefore, the foreskins of your heart. Um, and no longer be stubborn, or in Romans uh, chapter 2, verse 28, it says, A person is not a Jew who is one only outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly in circumcision of the heart um, by the Spirit. So um, even like when the Gentiles who hadn't been circumcised, but they had been changed at the heart level, um, that's, I think, what God's after. And he's after every man, woman, and child's heart of that community. That's what he's after, and that's what he wants, a circumcision of the heart. Yeah, so in a patriarchal society, we think, you know, in today's day and age, all about relationships as far as power dynamics, but in many ways, God's saying to Abram, you're chief servant of this family. You're chief you servant. Are. You're the chief slave. You ha- it's your <laughs> responsibility to serve every member of that household mm-hmm. so that every member of that household's need is met. And the head of the church is Christ. And in Philippians 2, what do we learn about Christ? Although he was God, he did not count equality with God as something to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, taking on the form of a slave. And so, you know, we have male elders at Crossroads because it's biblical, but not just because it's biblical, but because those elders are called to be chief servants, servants. foot washers in this church. Yeah. And they're also the ones that God is going to hold responsible yeah, right. for the care of this church. It's not about power, as our world thinks about power, and it's, it's not about rights. It's, it's about responsibility to serve. So I think when we think about patriarchal society, we often are using that word negatively, even when it comes to the church, because we're thinking about the times when male um, authority has been abused in the church. So patriarchal is just a, such a negative statement in our world. But really, if you think, look at Abraham or you look at Jesus and how he is, they are both patriarchs, obviously Abraham early, but then Jesus becomes the patriarch of this whole family of God. Okay, God the Father and then Jesus. But when you think about those being the male leaders, then you think you can look at patriarchy as a very positive thing because we associate it with abuse. But that's only if bad men are the patriarchs. If good men are the patriarchs, then we can come alongside and do this thing together the way God intended it to be. And so that's the good side of being a part of the family of God. It's not bad that men are the heads. It's bad when bad men are the heads. And so when you're under the covenant, under God as a male, and you you exemplify that kind of servant leadership, that's when it's a joy for those that are underneath that leadership to flourish and become all that they can be. I'll bring one more piece into this to give you guys time to think about this. So then when God makes his covenant with Abraham's people, because his family will become a people, 
and the people become a nation in Egypt and God will take them out and then he'll enter into a covenant with them. He gives them also a mark. And it's also out of the Egyptian culture. The Egyptians all wore tassels. But this one's different. Um, the, this tassel has to have a blue cord and all the people, all the men have to wear it. In the Egyptian culture, only royalty could wear it. But God's basically saying, all of you are royalty, which is why the color blue, which is also telling them. Uh, But the tassels also are to remind them every day that you belong to me, that you are in this marriage, that you are to keep your marriage vows to me, um, and that you are not to adulterate yourself. You are not to commit adultery. Now, that doesn't mean just as a husband, you know, have an adulterous affair because to God, all sin is adultery. All idolatry is adultery in essence. And so I think about this. So you take those two marks of circumcision later in the story, the tassels. Can I add one more? Yeah. Passover. Mark your house with yeah. blood. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. keep going. No. But I mean, every day the male had to put that on as a reminder. I belong to God. We don't have that today. Every time a male had to take a leak, <laughs> right? He's reminded, I belong to God. Hmm. Or let's even take this further. Let's say he wants to step out and, 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 and have an affair sexually. I mean, he has to look down and he's reminded. Like, that's that's where the mark that they belong to God is. And... So and it's a daily, yeah. it's a daily reminder that they they are they belong to God. Now that still hasn't answered the question: um, why just the males? Well, I think it. I don't think it's super complicated. If it's a patriarchal society, I think that it it just goes that far. I think that because the fathers would be the heads of the household, and everyone else would be under their headship and under their covering, everyone within the Beidav would be associated with the symbol of the covenant. That's how I've understood it. But uh, <laughs> this isn't just a an uh, Old Testament thing. It's super interesting to me that Paul, when he's kind of getting after the Galatian church, which if you read the book of Galatians, it's about essentially Paul lambasting a bunch of Judaizers who have essentially said that people that want to become Christians have to take this mark on first. And in the middle of his argument, he actually says a really interesting thing in Galatians chapter 6, verse 17, where he says, From now on, don't let anyone trouble me with these things, for I bear on my body the marks that show that I belong to Jesus. And what is he talking about now? He's saying, my, my body? Because <laughs> Paul's saying, I've been flogged, I've been beaten. My body shows the markings that yeah. I belong to Jesus. And yeah. I think as Christians, while we don't have this uh, symbol of the covenant in our lives, we should have marks. There should be things in our lives that we do or don't do. There should be ways to be identified as a Christian. And if we don't have those things as a mark of the covenant that we now have through the blood of Jesus, we got to ask our, our ourselves, like, do we belong to him? Because yeah. if you didn't have this mark, you did not belong to Yahweh. But Paul is saying, my body, and I'm not saying you have to have physical scars, but 
Do you have things in your life that mark that you are his and that he is yours? And in the New Testament, this is the purpose of baptism. Baptism Mm -hmm. is the symbol that we enter and experience that speak to my life is now dead, my former life, and now I live in the newness of life in Christ. And yeah, this is the one thing, though, that at times I'm a little bit envious. Maybe not so much the circumcision piece, but uh, only, well, where am I going with this? (laughs) You're just saying that you're jealous of well, I'm just some jealous of the signs that they have. Some of these things, I, I'm, yeah, that every day they, they have to wear their, their faith. faith. Mm-hmm. And yeah, we've been clothed in Christ. Sometimes it would be nice to like, okay, put on something that, that also, that's a physical reminder of the spiritual reality inside. Mm. That, that not only marks me but like the tassels themselves like everybody can see the tassels exactly so i'm not just saying this to myself but i'm saying it to everybody who sees me um i'm marked for god and i i don't know i think this is where tattoos maybe come in today i'm not endorsing tattoos i think we're looking for ways to sometimes mark ourselves Like even like there's a, been a fad with Christian t-shirts, you know, or different stuff like that. Not saying those are any better, but like something that marks people. Um, I think your point about baptism in the New Testament's interesting. And I'm, I wonder how that plays because some people compare that to like, well, if infants got circumcised, can infants get baptized? Um, and that's been a question that some yeah. people have had. My reform tradition said yes. Mm-hmm. And then... I grew up and married a Baptist, and her tradition said no. Right, Lynn? No. <laughs> if it, yeah, I grew up believing in believer's baptism. So once you make a decision for Christ, then you would be baptized. It mm-hmm. didn't matter if you were circumcised or not, but you make believer's baptism. So more adult or late childhood baptism is kind of what I grew up with. What is the, like, okay, so it talks about in the New Testament and in Deuteronomy being, having your heart be circumcised, right? And we assume that's uh, similar to what you're saying, Trig, of like um, having a, your heart or your life marked by God. Mm-hmm. What does that idea really look like? Because like, I think anybody can say that, like that, and I think that, you know, what we talked about t-shirts or tattoos, I think people are looking for rites of passage or something that marks them so people... So they themselves know and are aware, I am a person of faith. Like there's an identity change and shift that happens like Abraham. But what is that concept of um, the heart or the life being marked by circumcision? What does that look like? And I think you probably, you raised a great question and you probably have an answer for that question. Because this does get at, I think, probably why the New Testament is saying as important as it was that Abraham and his people were circumcised, like what God always wanted was not just a mark on your body. Mm-hmm. He wanted your heart. Mm-hmm. He wanted a circumcised heart. And well, this becomes the problem then with any kind of physical symbol. I can wear the t-shirt. I can get the tattoo. I can wear the cross or whatever. But I think what God really at the end of the day wants is a heart that leads to a life 
that is of that yeah. I belong to God. Look at my heart, look at my life, and let that be the evidence of whom I belong to. Which is also going back to baptism, why <clears throat> I believe in believer's baptism. And I, I usually go to 1 Corinthians 12 where it says, for in one spirit we are all baptized into one body, Jews and Greeks, slaves are free, and we're all made to drink of one spirit. And to me, I interpret that as until the Holy, you have been baptized by the Holy Spirit, there's no reason to have an outward symbol of something that isn't already an inward reality, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. But can we go back to this communal identity piece? Because there's actually, there is an important aspect of that. It's the same reason why teammates wear the same jersey today mm-hmm. on sports teams. It's identifying with this community of people that have a certain mission. Um, yeah, we're so individualistic that I think we have lost some of the beauty of having a corporate identity. So for them, circumcision was this way to identify corporately. We're all gods. This isn't just about me and God and God and me. This is about us as a family, as a people, as a clan belonging to God. And we miss that, you know, when we even talk about temple imagery in the New Testament. Um, as individuals, we're just a stone in the temple that is God's mm-hmm. house, right? And Christ is the cornerstone, but we're just a piece. We're not the whole piece. You know what I mean? Yeah, I, I think that what you're saying is, we, and it's so, I think it's prevalent actually today, not just among Christians, but Gabe talked to me about the young adult group too, that we were thought that we should be individualistic, like we should go to college, leave our parents' house, get a job, find our identity, work ourselves out and step into all that we're supposed to be. At the flip side, we have this innate sense, like you're talking about, Trig, of tribe, wanting to have a tribe or a collective mm. um, identity with a group of people. Like our hearts long for that. Like we're, we're raised to be individualistic and successful on our own, and yet our hearts want a tribe. I, mm. I feel like mm-hmm. I see that. I know that in myself, and I feel like I see that people are scrambling for, like, where do I fit? Where's my tribe? And so then you get all these competing offers from the world like you should fit here you can fit here come join this tribe and um i don't know speak to that gabe do you see that in the age group that you work with yeah i mean so i work primarily with mid-20s to mid-30s and i think i think you're right there's a sense of craving a, a some sort of external marking of identification, both for significance and for tribe, right? Because people want to be identified with a group. Um, so yes, you mentioned sports teams. I think also there's, um, in the young adult group, there's also a lot of people looking for their job to be their identity. Um, some people, it's a relationship is where they find significance and they connect only with other people that are couples or in relationships or people that have the same political views. We're just constantly looking for that. Um, um, and I think that uh, to, to look at the Genesis story, you have the Tower of Babel where they're trying to make a name for themselves because I think when we have this external thing, it somehow validates this thing. Or like I even meet some people that want to get baptized, not because there's been a change in them, but they feel like that's what you're supposed to do and that they think that'll produce the change. Um, but I, I, I think one thing that for me I've seen is it's really cool when people can 
set that aside, all those external things, and just find their identity in Christ. The thing about that is that can even feel a little elusive. Like, what does that mean to be marked by Christ? What does it look like to have changed? And I think one other example that comes to mind that makes me think of what it looks like, like a universal marking of a Christian is somebody who was one way, but now they're another. Um, I think of my brother, Stephen, um, who growing up, he was the antagonist of the family. And whenever there was a fight or anything going on, my mom or dad could literally just call him out because he was usually the antagonist starting all the fights. And he went off um, uh, to California. He got part of uh, a church out there and God radically changed his life. And I remember when he came back, um, we, he was with us. And a lot of times we can slip back into old habits. Um and somebody was like, oh, Stephen's back to his old tricks. Stephen's doing this again. And I remember him um, slamming his hand down on the table and saying, that's not who I am anymore. Um, and I think whenever you see somebody who is like changed, they're mm. no longer that, you can tell there's been a noticeable difference in their behavior. Um, yeah, I, I think that of is like an external thing that shows a marking of a Christian is when there's a change in the way they live. Yeah, I think we, um, I don't know, I'm going to just bring up something I think is, we all want to be understood, Mm -hmm. right? And we all want to belong to a group of people that understands us. And so I think we have that, that desire to be a part of a tribe that just is like us. And that's so cool about your brother that he was a part of one tribe and then his, you just notice it but he also longed to be re-identified like you're saying so that's not who I am anymore mm-hmm. that's such a beautiful picture of God like actually marking his heart and now yeah. disobedience or sin is an intrusion it's not a mark of who you are so now that they've been marked with this sign of the covenant they are gods regardless of what they do and in the same way as a Christ follower once you receive the Holy Spirit and your heart has been circumcised it's not that sin is eradicated in your life. We have to constantly mortify our sin and be sanctified, but we no longer identify, we no longer are identified by our sin. I, that's what I hear you saying, mm-hmm. especially with your brother, Stephen. Yeah. yeah. So I'm thinking about the Super Bowl commercial right now. Which he, one? He gets us. And I've talked to a lot of Christians that are like, oh, don't you love those commercials? I don't. I didn't see them. To okay. Be I don't so, know how you guys feel about them. I but don't then love I, them either. I, I literally, as can you, can you give some flavor for those that are not as aware? Like it, I've, I think I've seen them, it, but I'm it, not sure. It's really like just, it's not wrong. Mm-hmm. It's he does get us, Jesus. It, it, it. The message of the commercial, do you, Gabe. Have you seen them? Yeah, do you know what I'm like talking there about? There was one example. Um, is. Uh, at the Super Bowl, they showed one, and it was several different images of someone washing another person's feet um, and trying to give these examples. And then it, I, I can't remember the quote at the end, but it says something to the effect of like, um, he, he washed our feet or so, something to that extent. Yeah. And then it ends by saying he gets us and then says Jesus and has, <laughs> has the us um, in yellow yeah. or something like that. Yeah, right? it's just like a huge marketing campaign. Like you can see... Also, billboards around Grand Rapids, he gets us. Somebody's putting a lot of money, obviously, into Super Bowl ads to say to the world, Jesus understands you. Mm-hmm. And I, I think, on one sense, like, this speaks to our culture right now. They, what you just said, Lib, and you too, Gabe, that we, we have this longing to be understood. 
to be in a place where someone understands us. So therefore, this kind of marketing campaign that Jesus gets us, which he does, he gets us more than any he made us. Mm-hmm. But to limit Jesus to just he gets us, I literally, because uh, I've seen like three or four of them now, and when it happened, I think for the second time in the Super Bowl, I just said, when are they going to make a commercial that speaks to how Jesus changes us and heals us and recreates us and reforms us and mm. redeems us and resurrects us. Yeah, and like then, when it says he gets us, I don't think I've ever heard a more underwhelming description of what who God is to us. Or let's ask the other question. Do you get him? <laughs> Do you see who he is? Right. And it's what so he does. human-centered. Yes. You know, well, now could, we're, yeah. we're back into this whole text of, because I think Genesis 17, I, I don't know if Abram and Sarah even believe that God is going to do this miracle anymore. Hmm. So much so that God comes in, appears, that means he sees God, and then all those, Abram, I am El Shaddai. Hmm. I am the Lord Almighty. That's who you're dealing with. I will do this. I will do this. I will do this. I will do this. This is not about you, Abraham. This is about me. Mm-hmm. And, and what, what I will yeah. do. And what's so, Abram's response to that? He just falls prostrate. He falls right on his face. I think I he finally gets it here. Yeah. And I think it takes Sarah a couple more chapters because Abram eventually laughs in this passage and God doesn't seemingly turn away that laughter but a couple passages later when sarah laughs in 18 <laughs> the lord looks at abram and says why did sarah laugh and say well i really have a child now that i'm old is anything and then he re- reiterates what you're talking about is anything too hard for the lord i love it and it's a beautiful you know he sees abram okay abram's on board now but God is still going to pursue Sarah, which is beautiful, and say, I'm going to make you believe. Yeah. And he just says, anything too hard for me? Yeah, and I'm going to speak to that next week. It's literally the word wonderful. Hmm. Is anything too wonderful for me? <laughs> and think about how wonderful this story yeah. is. Like, we are talking about a 99-year-old man and a 90-year-old woman who <laughs> are asked to believe the promise that God is going to give them a child. And think about how wonderful that is. Yeah, and in contrast to that, he gets us ad and what you're saying about how he pursued Sarah and how he's so wonderful. When I was thinking about that, he gets us ad, and I was trying to figure out my brain, like, why is this bugging me? Like, why doesn't this feel right to me? And um I'm not hypercritical, so if if you love those ads, that's totally fine too. But in my heart, it just wasn't sitting well. And then I read I read this eulogy that Eugene Peterson's son hmm. gave of him at his funeral, where he said that my dad tricked everyone into believing that he actually had more than one sermon, but he didn't. He just had one sermon that he presented different ways, and it was the message that he whispered to us in bed every night, and that is these four things. He says this, God loves you, he's on your side, he's coming after you, mm-hmm. and he is relentless. Mm-hmm. Like that's so, that's so beautiful of what you're saying. That, that's the God of what happened with Sarah. He loves you, he's on your side, he's coming after you, and he is relentless. He's not gonna just let your little side laughters in the tent 
be unnoticed. No, he sees you, Sarah. He's coming for you. He's relentless, and he's going to make you believe that there is nothing that is too wonderful for him. And those four statements by Eugene Peterson, those are so powerful. Like, that's the God that I want to put on Super Bowl commercials. He loves you. He's coming for you. He's relentless. Not like he gets you. He Mm. gets you. That's so underwhelming. It's so less than who God is. and It doesn't really express his love for us, his extreme power. We can be critics here, right? Of Super Bowl commercials. P.S. There weren't any great Super Bowl commercials. I didn't think I was rating everyone. The great Super Bowl commercial (laughs) era is over. (laughs) No, it is. uh, Relentless is a beautiful word because it feels a little redundant at this point in the story. I mean, how many times has he got to tell? Even in this passage, he tells Abram and Sarah multiple times, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this. Uh, so do do, you, yeah. do we want to just be understood where someone gets us? No. Or do we want someone to rename us? Exactly. And change us from the inside out and take our life that was in the pit and redeem it and restore it. Yeah, and we can go back to social media. You know, I think a lot of what social media does is provide us an opportunity so that we can portray to others what we want people to understand of us. We want people to get us, see the expression of how I live, see the clothes that I like to wear, the places that I like to travel to, the stores that I like to shop at, the restaurants I like to dine in, what I like to eat. Even more than that, the life I want to live, the things I want to do, the choices that I want to live into, um, the pleasures I want to indulge in, right? The freedoms I want to have. And then in all that, does someone get me? That's not, that's not God. That's not what God is calling Abraham and Sarah to. He's saying, I'm going to teach you how to walk. I'm going to teach you the path to walk. And in this path, you're going to find life. And who better to tell you that than the one who made you? And that's where, going back to what you said, it's just so underwhelming because here we have a God that made you, that crafted you for his purposes, that says, I'm going to give you a name and I'm going to teach you how to live. And then the second name change we're going to hear about is going to be Jacob to Israel. Mm-hmm. And that's through a wrestling match. And Jacob comes out of that thing broken. I mean, his hip and uh, he's been wounded. So the, even there's wounding in from going from Jacob to Israel. Mm. But I can't wait to get to that story because the literary of him rising and the sun rising and it's just all this like imagery of resurrection and the sun rising of god rising in his mm. life to 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 redeem him and, and to restore him that's all what's symbolic of the name change mm. so that when you get to isaiah 43 god will say to jacob's people who are now israel mm. you guys probably know the the verse, right? Say it, Gabe. Yeah, uh, it says, do not remember the former things you're talking yes. about. Um, but behold, I do a new thing. Now it springs up, but do you not perceive it? Um, and so the, I think that's what you're going Yeah, for, and like then he who, is, uh, he, who, he has called you, Jacob, he who has redeemed you, Israel. Mm-hmm. And you see those pairings um, throughout Scripture where God will call them Jacob and that like he who called you Jacob he has redeemed you Israel using both those names to say you were once Jacob but now you're Israel for Mm -hmm. I have redeemed you I've Mm -hmm. called you by name you are mine Mm -hmm. 
Can we go back to this theme of wounding? Yeah. Because it brings to mind one of my favorite A.W. Tozer quotes. I'm sure you've heard it, where he says, it is doubtful whether God can bless a man or woman greatly until he has hurt them deeply. God actually rises up storms of conflict and relationships at times in order to accomplish that deeper work in our character. We cannot love our enemies in our own strength. This is a graduate level grace. Are you willing to enter this school? Are you willing to take this test? If you pass, you can expect to be elevated to a new level in the kingdom. For he brings us through these tests as preparation for greater use in the kingdom. You must pass the test first. I love it. It is doubtful whether God can bless a man greatly until he has hurt him deeply. Now, don't hear that as hurt in the sense that we think of the word, but wounding. This God, God says to Abram at 99, I want you to get circumcised and I want you to circumcise everyone, starting with Ishmael, who's 13. That was probably unpleasant. <laughs> and now we go forward to the cross of Christ and here's our wounded healer. I love that phrase, wounded healer. I don't know if, if, if there's healing without wounding. And then you can't be a healer unless you've been wounded. And could there be anything more profound said about God? Mm. He's a wounded healer. Hallelujah. By his wounds, we are healed. So now you talk about how in culture right now, one of the highest virtues is having safe spaces for people. <laughs> and we love to talk about this, Rod. Like we love C.S. Lewis and what's said of Aslan. The great lion who represents Jesus. Exactly. And is he's he not safe. safe. He, yeah, yeah. He's, he's not safe, but he's good. I know. And God is not safe. And your life will not be safe if you let him in and mark your life. But he's good. But he's good. I don't know. Just beautiful. I mean, it means that the wounding in our life is not wasted. And it means that the wounding in our life isn't even neutral. It means that the wounding in our life is actually the very thing that can bring healing and make us healers. If we bring it to the ultimate wounded healer, if we bring our wounding to the ultimate wounded healer, mm -hmm. um, he will turn us into wounded healers. He will turn our wounds in, in, into healing and then he'll make us into wounded healers. Can, and that anyone, to me is yeah. like just amazing. That means that when we're being wounded or seasons of wounding, it's, it's not a waste. It's even more than that. It's, it, it's turning us into actually healers. It's something so bad that our world looks at as bad, and then it turns it into a great, great good. Yeah. <laughs> and if you've been sinned against and wounded by another person in some way, this is not to say that God takes pleasure in that wounding that you are a victim of but that he is so good that he can t take even the worst of sins and transform them for your good and the good of another. So does anyone around this table, can they think of a time where they were wounded and God 
showed his radical redemption and mercy through that. I can try. I'm trying to think offhand. I think one of the things that came to mind was when I was talking in the message um, on Sunday, I mentioned that when somebody's been believing God for something for a number of years, but then they get exhausted of it, usually can have three different responses. Either you move to a place where you don't believe in God anymore, or you believe that God exists, number two, but he's just not good, Um, or three, that I'm just going to become God in my own life. And I think that there is some seasons where I had where I don't think I ever was in the place of number one where I didn't believe in God, but I definitely could resonate with the second one with uh, believing that God was not good. Because if you're praying for something for a long time but not seeing it, um, then how can God be good if he can hear my prayers but do nothing about it um, is what I thought. But I think that sometimes... one of the things I had to back up and zoom out about is thinking about whether or not if God is not answering it in the way I want, but has something better in mind and can redeem it for something different, if that makes sense. Yeah, that's beautiful. And I think I think for me personally, I can relate to that, Gabe, in the sense that I don't think I've ever gone to the place where I didn't believe God existed, but is he good? the doubting of, is he good? And that's really like you're saying, um, I can think of a couple things in my life that I prayed about over the long haul. And I'm still praying about, to be honest. And um, God, as my life progressed, didn't like fit in the box that I thought that he should, if that makes sense. Like he didn't, things didn't come out exactly the way I thought that they should. Like I think if you do A and B, that it's transactional with God and then C will be the result, right? Um, and that doesn't always happen. And that's when you become dependent. That's when you say, okay, God, I'm not God, you are. But then you can also question, like, is, are you good? Like, are, are your promises true? Are the, all these I wills that we're talking about in this um, text. And then when we had Shannon on a couple of weeks ago, she kept saying, oh, he's the God of I wills, I will, I will. What happens when he doesn't? You know, when he doesn't, the I wills don't come to fruition. Then you're left with those options. And I think for myself, the, the biggest question, it's either number two or number three. Uh, are you good? And Or I'll just take matter into my own hands and produce the result that I want, correct? And that's what we see in the text here with um, Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Ishmael is that third result of I'm just going to take matters into my own hands. But I love how um, even when God comes to Abraham in this passage and he's talking about his son, his son, his son, and then Abraham asks, what about Ishmael? Like Abraham loves Ishmael at this point. Ishmael's 13. And if you've had a child for 13 years, Mm. it's like Abraham actually wants him to be the son of the blessing at this point. Like he's raised him. And I love how he says, but what about Ishmael? Oh, that Ishmael would live before you. And that God in his kindness right there says, yes, I have a plan for Ishmael too. Like the fact that you took matters in your own hands right there in this text, we're seeing God turn that to something for good. Like, I'm going to bless Ishmael too. Um, because God doesn't, God, Ishmael, like Rod said, is not a mistake. Like God's going to actually bless him and use him in a way that probably Abraham never dreamed in a sense. And so that, are you good, God? Take matter into your own hands. Those responses to like unanswered prayers. Um, I praise God that we have a God who can take all of that doubt and all of that questioning and carry it on his shoulders. He's big enough for it. And um, then come through in ways that surprise us 
And then that's our walk. Our walk is just to be faithful and believing because it says in the New Testament too that there's a lot of people who don't receive the promises in their lifetime because God is an eternal God. And so we get to see these snippets. Our life is just like freeze frames on like the, you know, whole movie reel of eternity. And God's got such a bigger plan. And so really, sometimes the question for me is, can we put ourselves under his authority and under his will? And I think that's what even circumcision is. It's saying, you're God. I put myself under your authority. That's the mark of being one of God's people is that you're willing to say, you are God and I am not. And I am willing to obey no matter what because I trust you and I love you. And you're so faithful. Such a good shepherd. It's really good, Lib. I want to go back to your question because we haven't answered it. <laughs> I, I think I think much of life is wounding. Mm. I think to be in relationship means there's going to be wounds. Think about family wounds. Think about marital wounds, parenting wounds. I mean, I I I could speak to all of this. I I can pastoral wounds. I mean, to be a pastor today means you're constantly critiqued slandered things are said about you um seems like there's always a gossip colony somewhere um life is hurtful there's a lot of hurt and wounding in life so that's why i take great comfort in those things that i've said about what what god does with our wounds and as as all of those things i've i am a parent i am a husband I am a pastor. I'm not just one who've re, who has received wounds through those positions. I'm one who've, who've wounded other people, you know? There's nothing like when you know that you've wounded your own kids. Yeah. You know, and, 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 and you can see how, how you've wounded them. It, it's, it's, it's devastating. Or your wife, your spouse, you know, when you can honestly just assess like, wow, I've really, I've really wounded her. Um, but that's why this passage gives so much hope. Like that wounding isn't a dead end to itself. It's actually the means by which we are healed and can bring healing into the world when we bring our wounds to the wounded healer, the ultimate wounded healer, Christ. Yeah, sometimes you say, Rod, not in spite of our wounds, but because of. It's because of those wounds that we're actually qualified to then step into the healing of other people by the grace of God. Yeah, I tell so many people, they come wanting to get involved in ministry, but they'll say something to me like, but I've been so wounded in this area. Is is, is that okay? I'm like, what are you kidding me? Like, like that, is that okay? Like, God is going to use you, not in spite of the fact that you've been wounded in that area, but because you've been wounded in that area. Because usually it's in that place of wounding where... God most is. Paul said his power is made most manifest, is most present in our weakness, in our pain, our difficulty. And that's why Paul says, therefore, you want me to boast, I'm going to boast about those things, my wounds, my pain, my hurts, because that's where Christ is most powerful, where he's most present. And if Christians could really come to understand that, that should cause us then to not have to be so embarrassed about our our past mistakes that led to wounding or the wounds that we carry in our life, um, but ought to be seen almost as 
especially those wounds that we've brought to Christ and received as healing, almost as badges of honor of, of, of this now is what I get to offer to the world. I agree. I think that a lot of the ammunition that I now have as a pastor to be able to speak into people's lives, especially on an individual level when I'm sitting down across the table from somebody over coffee and they're expressing a wound has been from places of woundedness in my own life. Yeah. There's the power in that. And it's not that, again, God takes joy in our suffering or that he uh, smiles at being uh, at his people being sinned against. It, that he, it is that he is so good that he te- takes even the worst things in our lives and he buys them back for his purposes. And I think that's the journey of healing is when you step out in faith and in confidence and boldness and say, I'm not going to let, the enemy wants this to define me, but Christ wants to use it now. And then when you use it in someone else's life, that's like where I've seen the most healing in my life. You know, when, do you know what I'm talking about? Have you seen that? Yeah, I'll just add on that because I think that there's a very thin line between when something is a pain that's caused um, become your identity and when God uses it. Because I'll see sometimes people in ministry who are still healing from wounds and they're saying they're um, God's using it, but it's almost like trying to um, uh, use ministry as a way to like almost a form of therapy for themselves. And I don't think that's actually helpful. I think it's usually once somebody has healed from it, that God is, um, and maybe even when they're in the midst of it, that they're able to share with people. But, um, I think like a phrase I heard before is pain that is not transformed is transferred. That's really good. He's saying some amazing things right now. That this is profound. Keep going, Gabe. But so there's this idea that like, if it hasn't been transformed in my life, I will transfer it under a future situation. And so I know for me that like friendship was a source of um, place of feeling like rejection or a lot of wounds. And so then one of the things that happened was when I went into ministry, I think I saw it almost as a vehicle for community or for friendship for myself. And the, the thing about it is, yes, ministry can do that. But if I see it as that, as like my source for that, suddenly ministry gets misused and becomes an idol or a way of me trying to get my needs met versus a way of giving to God's people, if that makes sense. It makes tons of sense. And now we're back into the Super Bowl commercial. He doesn't just get us. He wants to heal us. He wants to change us, remake us, redeem us, restore us. And when we get to that place now, because you're bringing a great clarification to the things that I've said, um, now we we can become wounded healers. Mm -hmm. But hurt people hurt people. Yeah. And... That's why our hurts have to be healed. Otherwise, yeah. uh, in, in that state of just being hurt and wounded, we're just going to hurt, hurt people, hurt people. Wounded people, wound people. Um, but that's the beauty of God. He restores us and heals us so that we don't have to be in the state of hurt where we hurt others. Yeah. For, Is that what you were kind of yeah. trying to bring to the table? Absolutely, yeah. 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 But by the way, I just want us to know, we're, this is why this story that we're looking at in Genesis, 
It's amazing. But it's not like God looked and tried to find the most amazing person, marriage, Abram, Sarah, these two saints, and then this saintly family. You guys, these guys are a mess. I mean, we already see how Abram's hurt his wife in Egypt. Um, We're going to see so much family unhealth and family dysfunction. Hmm. Yet this is the family that God has chosen to heal and to bring healing to his world. Yeah. And it's so tempting to believe in these circumstances as Abram and Sarai believe that God has forsaken or abandoned them or that he's not going to live up to his promises. And it just reminds me of Romans 8. You know, Paul goes down the laundry list of things that we think separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Persecution, suffering, trials, famine, nakedness, danger. And Paul's answer to all of this, no. I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present or the future, nor any powers, neither height or depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And that is because Jesus was circumcised for us. He bled for us. He was cut to pieces for us. Well, I just want to say too that in this, at the end of this chapter, chapter 17, that because God kind of reiterates this promise in, I think, Genesis 12 and 15. And it's like, you'll be the father of nations. But then at the end of this chapter 17, it, he extends that. Um, he says you'll be the father of a great nation, meaning basically the Jewish nation, right? Um, and then at the end of this chapter, it says that everyone in Abraham's household was circumcised, including the foreigners. So even the people that weren't of his genealogy. So this is where it extends to all people of the world. And then Rod also mentioned this earlier, that Ishmael's descendants are also going to become a part of the blessing that Abraham, that God grants through Abraham, that he would eventually be a blessing to all nations. But that starts right here in this chapter, because everyone in his household, it says specifically, including the foreigners, are now circumcised and brought into this covenant. And so I love that you brought up that passage um, in Romans, that nothing can separate us from the love of God, um, but that also in Ephesians, this is one of my favorite prayers, um, that Paul prays for actually the Ephesians, which are not Jewish people, right? They're Gentiles in the New Testament church. And he says this, for this reason, I kneel before the Father from whom every family and in heaven and on earth is given my name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he might strengthen you with the power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ would dwell in your heart through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in his love, may have power together with all of God's holy people to grasp how wide and how long and high and deep is the love of Christ, that you would know that this love surpasses anything that you could know, that you would be filled to the measure of the fullness of God. I just love that. That's one of my favorite prayers. I've been praying it over my kids actually for a couple of years now that Christ would make his home in their hearts and that they would know that they are from this great family, that God has given them a name and that um, they would know that his love for them is so huge. So that's one of my favorite verses. And it just made me think that like he's praying this for the Ephesians, which is a whole nother nation of people that now his 
covenant is extended to because of Christ and what he did. But it, the marks of that extension to all nations are right here in Genesis 17. That's the very beginning of it. Yeah. Does Gabe get the last word? As always. I like the the verse you chose because uh, when it says like in Ephesians that uh, whom all families have been named, um, referring to like um, everybody, yeah. but also like back to the Abraham passage Amen. of getting a new name, um, a new identity. But even that Abraham and Sarah getting a new name isn't even really about them. It's all about God and um, that he, what he will do and that he will keep his word. Um, so just love this passage and, and I think it's so good to know that God is not a man that he should lie, but, a um, or, or, uh, what does it say? A son of man that he should repent has he said and will he not do. And I think, uh, seeing him as reliable and someone who keeps, uh, a, a God that keeps his word is a, a thing we can bank on and it gives us, um, a, like a solid faith. So. Anyways, that's uh, all I got on that, but just love that. Yeah. I just want to say this, Gabe. I'm so grateful for you that you're at Crossroads. I remember the first time we met was at uh, a seminary class at GRTS. Oh, yeah. mm-hmm. And I just knew Gabe was looking at this guy in the class because I was auditing class over there. Like, who is this dude? Like, he's so crazy and uh, maybe a bit obnoxious. But we connected early on there and then here you are today and what you're doing with our 20 30 somethings is just phenomenal we have like 200 people coming uh on some nights it's just gabe quick commercial what night what time where uh tuesdays at 7 p.m we are young adults so we actually start more at 7 15 but it is tuesdays at 7 um in the gathering space now so that's been exciting so yeah so it's post-college right anyone who's through college and then that young adult phase of life married or unmarried correct yep so i say mid-20s to mid-30s um and i think that that age bracket is just so cool to see people finding community in so i love it amen yeah that's a good last word dude Yeah, I appreciate you as well, bro. Glad that you're here. Thanks. Well, this is the locker room where we break down sermon stories and scripture for the race of your faith. This is that this podcast has been serving you. (laughs) 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 Hit follow and the notification bell. That way you can stay up to date on all new episodes. We love you, Crossroads. See ya. Peace. Peace.